what do you know about private equity? Unless you're an expert, probably not a whole lot. And that's by design. If I say, well, it's a type of investment fund, I know what you're thinking. The financial world is so boring, Matt. Can't you cover something fun like the influence of late-stage capitalism on Korean cinema? Actually, that does sound fun. But it goes without saying that what happens in the financial world has a huge impact on society. I shouldn't have to show receipts, but the Great Depression of the 1930s and the Great Recession of the late aughts are prime examples of this. What a lot of people don't know about private equity firms, however, is that they have wrapped their tentacles around different aspects of your life. While that might not sound like a bad deal, when they're investing in companies to succeed, right? The gimmick is that they make money even if the portfolio companies crash and burn. Today, I'm going to look at how private equity is embedded in our everyday lives, funded by the institutions that surround us, and what kind of impact that has on us. I also want to know how sociologists can study that impact. I'm Matt Sadlar, and today, sociology, with a lot of help from economics, is going to ruin private equity. If you're not sure how private equity affects your everyday life, let me walk you through a typical day. You wake up. Wait, do you live in an apartment building or condominium? Your building could be owned by a real estate private equity firm, which makes it... Owned by private equity. Need to go to the grocery store? Well, there's a chance your favorite store went into bankruptcy under private equity. Rest in peace, Earth Fair and Fresh and Easy. Or in the case of Albertsons... Owned by private equity. Need to pick up some clothing or shoes? Well, you can't go to Payless anymore, and the Neiman Marcus, J. Crew, True Religion, Nine West, and the Limited closest to you, they're probably gone. They were owned by private equity. Oh no! You get into a car accident or rush to the emergency room. Surprise! The physician practice operating out of the emergency room is owned by private equity? Yep. And you're about to get a surprise bill in the mail because the doctors secretly don't accept your insurance, even though the hospital does. I hope you're picking up on the common theme here. But what exactly is private equity? Well, it's... it's complicated. So I figured the best way to jump into the topic is to talk to an economist who has done a lot of work in the area. I'm Eileen Applebaum. I'm the co-director at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Full disclosure, you're my boss, so I should put that out there. (laughs) Yeah, full disclosure, that never stopped me from saying what I want to say. Can you explain private equity in a way that's easy for the average person to understand? I I know it's tough. No, it's not too tough. So you have private equity firms. You probably have heard of some of them, Blackstone, Carlisle, Apollo. These big firms sponsor investment funds. What that means is they recruit investors for their fund. The private equity firm looks for uh, institutional investors to put money into it. And so what do I mean by an institutional investor? This will be a pension fund, a university endowment, a foundation of some sort, and, and sovereign wealth funds. Those are the main institutional investors, and they recruit them to put up the equity in the private equity fund. So that's where the equity comes from. And it's important to know that the private equity firm itself puts up one to two cents for every dollar the other uh, investors in that fund put up. 
the private equity firm calls all the shots. It has something called a general partner, which is not a person. It's a committee made up of principals in the private equity firm. So that's the decision maker, the general partner. And then you have all these other people that they've recruited to put money in. They're called limited partners. They are the private, we'll just call them private equity investors. Those are the investors. Okay, so that's the equity. And that's where the down payment comes for buying a company. So the private equity fund does make a down payment. And then it finances the rest of the acquisition with debt. And uh, it's one thing for you to put down 20% on your house. It's another thing for them to put down 20% on a multi-million or even billion-dollar company and raise the rest in debt. It's a huge amount of debt. Uh, And now the interesting twist, which nobody can believe the first time they hear it, is that the private equity firm owns the portfolio companies that are being purchased with this equity down payment and debt. But the debt has to all be paid back by the company they acquired. So to just say it over again, you have this investment fund. It does have money in it that came from the limited partners. And that becomes the down, that's the private equity fund. And that becomes the down payment on the business. And all the rest of the financing is in the form of debt. And the interesting and unbelievable fact is that while the private equity firm owns this company, the company has to pay back the debt. And if it can't pay back the debt, the private equity firm and the private equity fund and the general partner in the private equity fund who made the decision about how much debt to put on that company, they get away scot-free. They have no responsibility for paying back any part of this debt goes into distress, the first thing it does is it squeezes its workers. It's trying to find money to, to, keep, to keep in business, to make the payments on the debt. And if it can't do that, then it goes into bankruptcy. Sometimes bankruptcy ends in liquidation, as was the case with Toys R Us. And sometimes bankruptcy uh, ends with some sort of restructuring of the company. It depends on the creditors. That's the point at which it depends on the creditors. So you have, okay, all this debt was put on the company. Somebody loaned them that money. And the lenders of that money took a look at Toys R Us and said, we have a better chance of getting some of our money back. Certainly, they're not going to get it all back. But getting some of our money back, if we have this, we liquidate the company, get rid of all the employees, sell off all the stores for other uses and take that money and pay ourselves back for all this debt. Other cases, they may look at a situation and say, well, if this company just restructures in this way and that way, we'll take a haircut on the debt. In in bankruptcy, the company always gets to reduce some of its debt. Uh, So the creditors are going to lose money on it for sure. But they look at the situation and say, we have a better chance if this company keeps operating So that's how it turns out that sometimes they liquidate and sometimes they just restructure. But the interesting uh, point is that the folks who decided to put all that debt on that company have no responsibility for paying off that debt. How did you get into this particular line of research? So I've been studying private equity since 
2010, when I first became really aware of how much what we thought was negotiations between labor and management really was management was really not able to speak for itself that there was uh, someone behind a curtain pulling the strings and uh, we wanted to know more about it. Uh, so this is work I've been doing with Rosemary Bott, a professor at Cornell University. I was at Rutgers when we started. We had the idea that this would just be something small and quick and easy to understand. And so we offered to write a small volume, just a, a little the monologue, monograph rather, on private equity for $25,000. Four years later, <laughs> a few hundred pages later, we had our book, uh, Private Equity at Work, When Wall Street uh, Manages Main Street, in which we lay out a lot of the private equity model. That came out in 2014. Of course, there have been many developments since. And uh, Rose and I continue to write about private equity and all the new, all the new bad things it's doing. Uh, so, so just to be clear, there are thousands, there's probably 8,000 private equity funds out there. And most of them are smallish funds. Uh, and these private equity firms that sponsor these funds by smallish companies. When you buy a smallish company, one thing you notice is there are not many assets to mortgage. And consequently, they don't use excessive debt not because they wouldn't like to, but because they can't. And because these are small, usually family-owned companies that they take over, uh, there's a lot of room for operational improvement. There's room to put uh, people on their board of directors who understand business strategy and can help them make inroads where they haven't already done that. Uh, and these are really the success stories. And so we talk about them in the book, Private Equity at Work. We try to be even-handed and uh, to say that there are many cases among those 8,000 funds uh, where this is going on. But this is not where the bulk of the money goes. The bulk of the money, overwhelmingly, the money that goes out to private equity firms that sponsor these funds, there are 300 private equity firms worldwide that, that get most of the funds uh, that have these huge investment funds and can't take on small companies because the transactions costs are too high. So they go out and buy big companies. And the, the size of these is just growing tremendously. So Carlisle announced that it was going to raise a $27 billion fund, $27 billion. It used to be that a $5 billion fund, which is a, the definition of a mega fund, was rare. Now 5 billion funds are becoming common. And we have Carlisle going out for a $27 billion fund. And not to be outdone, a few weeks later, Blackstone just announced that it's going out for a $30 billion fund. Well, when you have funds that big, all you can do is invest them in really big companies. Uh, and those companies have uh, very, that they already have modern accounting systems. It wouldn't be worth you know, a couple of billion dollars if they didn't already have modern accounting systems, modern IT systems, good business strategy, good operating uh, the strategies or the, the policies. So there's not much left to do to make money with them beyond some sort of financial engineering. So that's a pretty good segue. A lot of the media coverage of private equity-owned retail companies going under, like Toys R Us, focused on their inability to compete with the likes of online retailers such as Amazon. 
were they even given the resources to compete with online retail? You're exactly right. So uh, when you load these companies with debt, then they go into distress and bankruptcy if they don't make the payments on the debt. And that really starves them of resources to do a full-fledged e-commerce. I mean, Toys R Us was huge. It had stores around the world. Uh, It really, it had a couple of hundred stores in the U.S. and over a thousand stores altogether. It was hugely popular. Everybody who grew up in America, at least, has a memory of being taken to a Toys R Us store, at least even if your parents couldn't buy you anything there, but to watch the trains go around and all the other things that they had. Uh, And the people who worked there loved that store. You had people there when the store liquidated who had 20 and 30 years of tenure with that store. So it was extremely popular. It had a loyal uh, workforce and a loyal customer base. How is it that a store like that could not hire whatever you need to create uh, the kind of thing that that you want to do? We're seeing it now. We are seeing uh, uh, other kinds of businesses that want to have that kind of presence, and they're having no trouble hiring workers away from Amazon and the other big e-commerce companies. Uh, They're hiring the programmers and whatever else is required. So it could be done. You have to have enough money to do it. And that's what the debt made impossible. What does it look like for workers at a company that is bought out by private equity? What starts to happen? So it depends on what we're talking about. Private equity gets away with saying, oh, not many of our companies end up in bankruptcy or make pressure or whatever, because they include all those little uh, private equity firms and funds. Those are not leveraged buyouts. So leverage means you use an excessive amount of debt. So publicly traded companies typically have 40% debt, 60% equity, or some ratio, maybe 35% debt, 65% equity, some ratio like that. Uh, The leveraged buyouts turn that on its head. They have 60% debt, 70% debt. They're not those little ones with 35 or 40% debt. So when they talk about how they perform, they are glossing over the fact that They count anything a private equity firm buys as a leveraged buyout, but many of them are not leveraged at all. But if you look at um, a leveraged buyout where you suddenly have a huge amount of debt, you have to meet, at least be paying the interest on it, even if it's a balloon at the end for paying the principal. At a minimum, you're paying the interest. In general, you'll be paying just like when your mortgage interest and principal, you know, paying down the the amortizing the, uh, the debt. So all of a sudden, you're a company that didn't have all that debt before and now has to get your cash flow up. The fastest way to increase cash flow is to cut your labor costs. Anything else, investing in technology, increasing productivity, that won't happen fast enough because you have to start making payments on the debt on day one. So that's really how it begins. Uh, Either you lay workers off Uh, One of their strategies, if they buy, let's say it's retail and they buy a chain, is to look at the stores. They may be profitable, but they're underperforming the rest of the stores. Just close them. Just close them and be done with them. Uh, And so all those workers, (laughs) that store lose their job. In other stores, it may simply be cutting back on the number of workers, or it may be a reduction in benefits or reduction in pay reduction in hours, uh, all the various ways that you can cut labor costs. And we know that this is the case because if private equity is considering buying 
a company that is unionized, they will first meet with the union and they will say to them, well, we've looked at your compensation and it's above the market average. <laughs> yes, that's what unions do. <laughs> but they say it's above the, the market average. We can't make a go of it with your wages so high. And these are the cuts in wages and benefits that we are going to propose. Take it or leave it. Because usually the only time a unionized company is looking for a private equity buyer is when it's in trouble. So take our offer or not. If you don't take our offer, you're going to be stuck with a company that's going under anyway. Or you take our offer, we preserve the jobs, but here's what you have to give up. So we know that that's what they're going to do. And we know that where there are unionized companies involved, that's the negotiation. Either benefits and wages will be cut, hours will be cut, a whole store will be closed down, workers will be laid off wholesale, or they'll be laid off a few at a time. But the first place to raise uh, free cash flow ready to be used to pay down debt is by cutting your labor costs one way or another. So we've talked a little about private equity and retail, but I think people listening to this might be shocked to hear about private equity in hospital emergency rooms. Can you talk a little about how that works? Private equity has been buying up doctor's practice. So Blackstone owns a company called Team Health and KKR owns a company called Envision. And these companies have been buying up doctor's practices. At this point, Team Health and Envision have cornered 30% of the market for outsourced emergency room doctors. Now, it seems ridiculous. We heard about outsourcing of peripheral functions. Nobody is surprised to find out that the cleaning staff in a hospital probably is not on the hospital payroll. You've heard that uh, the cafeteria or even the food service for the uh, patients may have been outsourced. These, these are considered peripheral functions. They're not core to the hospital's mission. Well, doctors, you would think would be core to the hospital's mission. I don't get it. But anyway, hospitals have decided that they are okay with outsourcing uh, a number of specialties. Emergency medicine is one of the biggest that they outsource, but also radiology and anesthesiology. So I've told my family members, if you're going in for surgery, you come in at 5.30 in the morning and you meet your anesthesiologist for the first time, you want to know whether that anesthesiologist is on the payroll of the hospital. And if they hand you a bunch of forms that says, if anything goes wrong, you can't sue the anesthesiologist or says that the anesthesiologist can bill you separately. What my family members say is, well, I'm not going to have this operation. You have to, if you don't have an anesthesiologist on staff, which they all have some anesthesiologists on staff, nobody outsources the entire anesthesiology department. But if you don't have an anesthesiologist on staff, I'm going to have to just cancel this operation. Everybody's already there. The operating room is waiting for you. They do not want to cancel the operation at that time. Uh, okay, and so what those papers that you sign allow, or when you come into the emergency room, uh, what is possible is that that hospital and that emergency room and that surgery that was scheduled, all of this is in your network. But the doctor who treats you might be on the staff of Envision or Team Health, and those organizations may not be in your network. And at the end of the day, what that means is you leave the emergency room, they've accepted your insurance, you think everything is taken care of, you go home, 
and you get a bill for many, many, many thousands of dollars uh, for assistant surgeons who came in and helped, for the anesthesiologist, as I just said, for the emergency medicine doctor, him or herself. You get all kinds of bills afterwards. Well, that's what was called surprise medical billing. Of course, patients were blaming Team Health and Envision. And our role at CEPR was to reveal that Blackstone owns Team Health and KKR owns Envision. And this is a deliberate strategy of private equity firms to make tons of money from very vulnerable patients who often have no choice about where they are. Or if they have a choice, they made sure they went to a hospital that was in network. They had no idea that the doctor who treated them might not be in network. This practice has gone on for years, and eventually a coalition of patients and advocates and so on, uh, with some really good people in Congress, were able to uh, pass an act. It's called the No Surprises Act. And so people will not get surprise medical bills starting January 1st, 2022. Uh, they will not be able to send these to you. So after that, you don't have to worry about signing anything for the except giving away liability, but, but you don't have to worry that you're going to get a surprise medical bill. The uh, private equity-owned doctor's practices can still try to bill the insurance companies for more than they should, but these will go to arbitration. And although arbitration is not my favorite way to settle these things, uh, it turns out that it's not too bad because the arbitrators... And the bill mandates that the arbitrators start from what is the usual fee for that procedure in that community. Where private equity lost is they would have liked the negotiations with the arbitrator to start from what they charged and come down a little bit. Instead, they're going to start from what the cost of the procedure is and go up a little bit. And that's a much, much better picture. Not, not that we are fans of insurance companies. We are not fans of insurance companies. But on this issue... Uh, limiting the, what the insurance companies will have to pay will hold down premiums, hold down healthcare costs. And so we are in favor of it. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, yeah, it's been my pleasure. To recap, private equity firms invest in portfolio companies using institutional investors, which can include endowments and pension funds. In the case of smaller private equity firms buying out small to mid-sized companies, this can be beneficial, as the firms can provide financing and expertise on improvements within the company. In the case of mega funds, however, the high level of debt placed on the portfolio company and the reorganization that takes place to turn a profit for investors can have a disastrous effect on the company and its workers. So how do sociologists approach this area of research? I reached out to a PhD sociology student at the University of Michigan who is working on the Private Equity, Employment, and Earning Inequality Project. My name is Dylan Nelson. I'm a PhD student in sociology at the University of Michigan, and I'm studying private equity for my dissertation. Can you tell me a little bit about your background? What led to your interest in this area? That's an interesting question. I think there's a short answer and a long answer. The long answer is that I was going to college during the financial crisis. And so I became really interested 
in some organizations in Providence, Rhode Island, in my community that were working with people who'd been affected by some of these big changes in the way that finance works. That's the long story. The short story is I uh, think it's an important problem in our society and it's an important debate. The debate being how is private equity, this new form of corporate ownership affecting working people in the US and all over the world. And so you're working on a project right now, the Private Equity Employment and Earning Inequality Project. What is your research question? The research question is, how do private equity leverage buyouts affect workers in different positions within the firm? Obviously, you can't speak about your results yet, but are you testing a particular hypothesis? Yes, I'm looking at four hypotheses right now. And this is comparing education on the one hand and the leverage in the buyout deal on the other, and then interacting those two factors. So education is giving you workers as a proxy in different positions within the firm. And the cost of debt in the general economy is giving you the proxy for the leverage in the deal. And what I'm hypothesizing as I bring these together is that private equity buyouts of public firms mostly are negatively affecting non-college educated workers while actually benefiting college educated workers, but that this difference disappears somewhat when you look at these very high leverage deals, which mostly happen in the lead up to the Great Recession and to the 2000 recession. And what you see there is the effect on the higher educated workers actually moves negative, and the effect on the lower educated workers moves even more negative. Sorry, so I'm trying to understand. It's this idea that as the debt ratio changes, there's a different effect among workers in education? Yeah, so the theory gets back to this idea of the conception of the firm and the conception of the restructuring process. When we have normal private equity buyouts, when the cost of high yield debt is very high, These are more focused on operational engineering and operational engineering brings skill bias, technological change, outsourcing, other factors that increase earnings inequality based on education. One of the things I'm showing in the paper is that when the cost of debt falls low and the leverage increases in the deals, the conception of the restructuring is more focused on financial engineering. And this ends up leading to a greater likelihood of bankruptcy, and it leads to more job cutting and other intermediate factors that reduce worker earnings after the buyout. So what is your methodology? I know that private equity data sets can be hard to obtain. So what are you using? This is a big question, and it's one of the reasons that we haven't made a ton of progress on private equity. We know it's this important macro organizational phenomenon And I know you've talked with Eileen about the amazing effects that private equity is happening, yet we often are not able to observe companies prior to and post being bought out by private equity companies, and especially the workers under those different conditions. So I'm using quantitative methods to study these earnings effects of private equity buyouts. I'm using census data, which are collected by states and aggregated in the census department. And this allows you to do a couple of really interesting things. One, 
you can follow companies through restructuring and you can follow workers over time because it's all linked through the social security number. Two, you can see companies even when they're not public. A lot of the quantitative research in economic sociology uses the CompuStat data, which is SEC filings for public firms. And three, you can look at workers actually moving between firms over time. You can use that for identification and also to ask research questions, including on the classic labor mobility questions of the 70s and 80s, for which we didn't have actually a lot of evidence. For sociologists starting work in this area, what is a good jumping off point in terms of literature? Like, where do you start? I would start first with the Private Equity at Work book by (laughs) Eileen and Rose. It explains basically the way that private equity works. It gives interesting case studies and it reviews some of the literature on employment. In terms of the broader private equity literature, it's mostly in finance and I would recommend sociologists interested in these topics to look into those papers because ultimately finance is a very sociological uh, domain of the economy in terms of the institutions, uh, the relationship with government, the flows of workers and change in the financial sector over the last 30 years. So some of those would be the Stephen Davis project, which has a number of papers over the years using census data to look at employment effects. And there are some other kind of newer research using administrative data from different companies, Lily Fang at INSEAD, Olson and Tog are economists. They have some work on uh, Nordic countries. In terms of sociology, Neely and Carmichael have a short article in the American Behavioral Scientist about shadow banking, which they include private equity under that. And the Oxford Handbook of Sociology of Finance, which is useful to get started. Yeah, thank you so much. This this is a lot of great information. And thank you for taking your time to talk with me. I'm very appreciative that you invited me and let me know if I can provide any other information. If how private equity operates is confusing to the average person, that's because it's purposely built that way. In a testimony to a Senate subcommittee, Eileen Applebaum wrote, quote, A veil of secrecy hides much of what private equity firms do. The fees and expenses they charge to their investors for managing their money, or the monitoring fees and transaction costs they charge to their portfolio companies. End quote. There's also little to no information available on the financial condition or performance of portfolio companies, even to investors. They don't call it private equity for nothing. Well, hopefully this episode sheds a little light on how it actually works. I'd like to thank my guests Eileen Applebaum and Dylan Nelson. This episode was written, mixed, and edited by me, Matt Sedlar. I also wrote and recorded the music you've been listening to. Join me next month as sociology ruins something completely different.